Welcome to the Experience Darden Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. So on this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Natalia Alvarez-Diaz. Natalia is a second-year student in our full-time MBA class of 2022, and she is also the president of our Graduate Women in Business Club. Natalia and I recently connected via Zoom to talk more about her background, what led her to Darden, and what GWIB has planned for the months ahead. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Natalia Alvarez-Diaz. Natalia, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brad. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's nice to see you here. Uh, our paths have crossed a, a few times over the, the past couple months as we've been planning for the diversity conference. That's coming up. A lot to look forward to in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah, diversity conference is coming up. WIB Graduate Women in Business Conference is also coming up. So um, we talk a lot at Darden about how Q2 is an extremely busy time. And um, it's definitely true for me this year. Even as a second year student, you're finding ways to, to fill up your time. <laughs> yes, um, different different sort of priorities and, and um, events, but definitely just as busy, but all good things. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more about who you are and your background before coming to Darden. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Um, I am originally from Mexico City. Uh, I am the daughter of diplomats. And so I was lucky enough to spend... Uh, my childhood in a few different places. I was born in Canada uh, at the time when my parents were working on NAFTA. Uh, And then my family moved around the world, but also stayed really close to Mexico. Uh, We typically would go abroad and then come back for a few years. Um, So after being in Canada, we went back to Mexico. Um, I then spent a few years living in New Zealand, right around the time when Lord of the Rings was filmed. So a particularly good time to be living there. Um, especially as a, you know, child and sort of young adult, uh, went back to Mexico. And when I was in high school, my um, father was posted in the Middle East. Um, So I actually moved to Beirut, Lebanon, um, in the middle of high school. And it was there that uh, I attended an American school. My whole life, I had attended either international or American schools because of this moving around um, situation. And I went to an American school and had professors and teachers who Uh, spoke to me about the liberal arts sort of education model um, and what that could do uh, for for me and and for somebody who um, had always really enjoyed writing and and sort of um, critical thinking. And so um, much to the distress of my parents who had spent very little time in the U.S., um, I decided that I would apply to college in in the U.S. Um, And so I ended up moving from Beirut to a small town in Western Massachusetts, South Hadley, to attend Mount Holyoke College, um, which is a women's college, a liberal arts college um, in a beautiful part of the country. Um, And when I tell you, Brett, that there is possibly no place more different from Beirut or Mexico City than South Hadley, um, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Um, And that transition was admittedly a little difficult, um, but I ended up really falling in love with with the school and with the sort of academic experience that I had. I I majored in politics and in history because I had been really curious about understanding some of the dynamics that had sort of played out in front of my eyes in these different countries. I wanted to understand why places like Canada and New Zealand felt so much more wealthier and more equitable than, you know, my home country, Mexico and Lebanon and some of the other places um, that I had been fortunate enough to spend time. And so politics and history, I thought, gave me a good sort of foundation for learning all of that. 
Um, and, and through that learning, I also realized that one of the greatest determinants of, you know, change and positive social change was education. So when I graduated from Mount Holyoke, I set out to work in education and joined um, at the time a small firm uh, based in Washington, D.C. that was doing best practice research for community colleges and universities, um, but starting to explore the role that technology could play um, in sort of helping to close some achievement gaps, helping to recruit more diverse students, helping to ensure that folks were graduated from college with less debt. Um, and I thought I'd be there for a couple of years. I am a millennial after all, um, but I ended up surprising everybody, especially myself. I actually stayed there for almost seven um, because I had these incredible opportunities within a, a fast growing company. And um, I got to wear a number of different hats to manage my own team. Um, to do product launches, to think about mature technology products. And I, I really loved all of that. It was wonderful. Um, I loved living in Washington, D.C. I was really involved in the local community as an um, immigrants' rights organizer, as a volunteer for different organizations. Um, I met my fiancé there, um, so that has been great. And, um, yeah, still really connected to, to Mexico, where my family lives, um, but also very grateful to have ended up in Charlottesville, which is a Truly beautiful, beautiful place. You mentioned coming from Beirut to South Hadley, that <laughs> change and difference. Um, as I was listening to your story, there's lots of moving around and relocation. Do you feel like you were equipped for that kind of change just because you had had sort of constant change? I, I think about my own lived experience. When I yeah. grew up in Charlotte. I was in the same town for the first 18 <laughs> years of my life until I went off to college. Like. Yeah. I think the grass to some extent is always greener because I think when I was growing up, all I craved was that feeling of I'm from one place and I know all the traditions and nobody questions where I'm from or where I belong. Um, so I always was envious of my cousins or my friends who had been like, I've been here, you know, my whole life kind of thing. Um, I do think, I think I was really equipped for a lot of those transitions because of, um, the really intentional work that my parents did. I think both of them really realized that this was going to be a difficult thing and that sort of crossing cultures and languages and religions and all of these different things um, could be really challenging, especially for a child and, and particularly, I think, for a woman, um, for a young girl. And so I think they were very intentional in creating a lot of space for us to process a lot of what was happening. And also, Brett, they were really intentional about helping us to always hold on to our identity as being from Mexico um, and really feeling like we had a, a home and a community there. There were definitely times when I felt far away from that. You know, I, I vividly remember being very upset when we moved back from New Zealand because I had finally made a good friend group. I didn't speak Spanish as well as I had in the past. Um, and I felt I think it's a particular sort of loneliness to feel like a foreigner in your home country or in your home city. Um, and I felt that really acutely when I moved back. Um, but I do think it has created a, um, a certain type of resilience. Um, that's a lot of why I am so passionate about working with immigrants, because I, I, I see a lot of, you know, in very different ways. My experience was incredibly privileged, but um, that yearning from home, that desire to bring that with you, um, that desire to give back, um, I definitely see, um, see myself reflected in a lot of the stories that I've had a chance to, to hear. Yeah, I'm curious about what you learned. You mentioned being involved with immigrants' rights organizations in, in D.C. Um, I'm curious what you learned through that experience, because obviously we, immigration's in the national conversation, it seems, all the time here in, here in the U.S. Yeah. And no one has 
has come up with a solution yet um, for for right. We- and it's yeah, it's a it's a deeply polarizing topic, or it can be. You know, my work with immigrants' rights and and with immigrant communities is actually one of the things that led me to business school. Um, I had always assumed that maybe I would get a, a master's in public policy or become a lawyer because I had always been really sort of focused on. Um, how can I make the world more, world more equitable? How can I address income inequality? How can I make it easier for women and minorities um, to have the same opportunities that others have had historically? Um, I started working um, with, with immigrants' rights groups pretty much as soon as I moved to, to D.C. And I first worked with a couple of nonprofits, but I really found my home um, in a much more grassroots activist community. Um, it was pretty much as opposite to corporate America, which was where I spent sort of my nine to five, as you can get. Um, This was a really sort of um, incredible, radical, um, flat organization where there were no hierarchies and where um, I had the chance to to really interact with people from all walks of life. I think, you know, DC is a city where the average person is like 26 years old. And I spent very little time with people who weren't in my age group or had a similar education background. And then when I got involved in this movement, suddenly my conversations were with people in their seventies or, um, you know, with, with immigrants from all sorts of different places. And um, one of the most sort of um, important moments in my own life and in my trajectory, as I figured out what I wanted to do was that um, we were really involved in, in trying to sort of mitigate some of the negative outcomes of raids um, that often happen um, in which, um, immigrations and customs enforcement will essentially try and um, come and do raids and, and deport folks who, um, you know, are here without status. And um, as you can imagine, that has a huge consequence on those communities and families. And um, there was one period of time in which there had been an announcement that there were going to be massive large-scale raids and that a lot of them would be concentrated in the Washington, D.C. area. And so we came together and said, what can we do about this? Is there anything we can do to support the community? And we had received information that the way in which the agency was going to do this was through partnerships with national large hotel chains um, so that they could actually house folks in those hotel chains. And I and a group of other activists actually decided that our play was going to be to talk to these corporate entities and to say, what side of history do you want to be on and who do you want to collaborate with? And I was really young. I was the youngest person, you know, as a part of this group. And a lot of them were seasoned policymakers and, um, you know, folks who had worked in corporate America for a long time. But I got to see the power of the private sector, really, I think, in a very real way, because we were able to convince some of these large hotel chains, you know, the Hiltons, the Motel Sixes of the world, um, to publicly say they wouldn't collaborate with the agency. And as a result of that, um, the raids actually were reduced and they were really, they were really small. And so, you know, I acknowledge that that's a particular sort of stance and political view that not everybody agrees with. Um, and I understand that, but I think for me, it was emblematic of the power that the private sector has to have true consequences um, that are social and political in nature. Um, and for me, that was really, that was really crystallizing because I was, you know, sure at that point that maybe going down the route where I could become a leader in the private sector would not only enable me to have the impact in the public sector that I want to have, but potentially better equip me to do that at scale. It's an interesting point. I think organizations over the past couple of years have been, have been challenged to think about where they'd like to stand in history and how they'd like to be remembered in a, in a way that perhaps they haven't yeah. been previously. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, um, 
was fascinating. This past quarter, I took a class um, called Managing Sustainability from the Inside Out. And I actually learned that there's a term for this thing that I had sort of experienced. It's called brand activism. Um, and that's something that we learn a lot about at Darden through our marketing classes, our strategy classes. Um, you know, how do you position your brand? What do you do around brand activism? How do you ensure that you're doing that in a way that is um, sustainable and also, you know, ultimately profitable for, for your company as well? Yeah, we had this great conversation with Ed Freeman a couple yeah. of weeks ago uh, in our office hour series. And, you know, he talks about profit and purpose, right? These two things together that right. the business coexist. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. Well, so talk a little bit about the sort of why you're MBA and seeing the impact of the, the private sector. Um, what led you to Darden? Yeah. So I think in addition to that experience of sort of seeing the impact on the on the private sector, there were a couple of other things that were happening professionally that really led me to the MBA. Um, I was working at, at the time in a product marketing role for um, a large, fairly mature product. And I found as I had conversations with some of my um, sales peers, so maybe some of the folks who were doing projections or pricing or with the UX and engineering and product folks that I was sort of talking around the numbers is the best way for me to describe it. I um, just simply didn't have the quantitative skill set that I needed to really be able to roll my sleeves up and get into the nitty gritty with all of them. And I felt like that was um, really preventing me from being the best possible, you know, marketer that I could be the best possible sort of um, professional and, and having the greatest impact that I could. And so that made me think, okay, what would allow me to sort of really sharpen my, um, my skill set? What, where, what could I do? That was the first thing. And then the second thing, you know, I had mentioned, I have been fortunate enough to manage some people in, in my time at, um, at this company and, I think that was probably one of the most transformative experiences because I realized how little I knew about management and how much opportunity there was for me to understand the kind of leader and manager and motivator that I wanted to be and um, about how to create cultures, how to create teams, how to create processes. And so both of those things essentially led me to an MBA. And there were a couple of reasons for Darden. The first is that um, a huge mentor of mine at my old company, the um, head of marketing and, and somebody who I had worked with closely and admired, really um, had admired for a long time, had her MBA from Darden. And she always spoke fondly of the school. So it was always sort of in the back of my mind. I, I had known that. Um, then I came here for the diversity conference because I really wanted to find a place um, where I felt like there was a true and real emphasis on diversity. And um, it's funny now to be a second year and helping to plan it. It really feels sort of like a full circle moment for me, but that was a really uh, important experience for me because I was able to see the way that Darden approached uh, diversity. And, and for me, you know, I was looking at other schools and, and going to similar diversity conferences or events. And I was really struck by how willing um Darden was to admit its shortcomings and to have open and honest dialogues um, about, you know, what, what could be better and how we could get there. So that was really important to me. And then I really wanted the case method, Brett, because I had never, I, like I said, I would sort of traditionally been scared of some of the harder sort of more quantitative courses. And I felt like, okay, if I go to some other schools, I might be able to just say, I don't want to take that class or I'm going to, you know, test out of that other class. And um, maybe take, you know, accounting for people who have never done that. And 
in my experience in the real world, that's never really quite how it works. You're always going to be in a room with people with very varied um, levels of experience or, or perhaps comfort with a particular subject and being able to sit comfortably in that seat and really hold your own is, is what I wanted. And I think that's exactly what the case method, um, what the case method gives you. And so I, you know, was, was really drawn to that. And then in, in speaking to alums and speaking to current students, part of what had made my undergrad experience so incredible was the close relationships that I was able to form with faculty. And I really wanted that. Um, and there are very few business schools in which I think the professors are as dedicated to teaching and to their students as they are here at Darden. And that has proven out to be true time and time again um, in my time here. Professors have been here for me, whether I have needed you know, help personally, professionally, academically. Um, so those were some of the things that you know, really made Darden the place for me. So you come here as a first year student. Um probably some adjustments for you. Um, when you think back on, on that experience, <laughs> what, what were the learning curves? Yeah, there were, there were definitely learning curves. Um, I had been out of the workforce for, you know, seven years. I mean, had been in the workforce for seven years and so hadn't been in school. Um, getting myself back into a routine of, of studying and of knowing how to manage my time when I both had a lot of flexibility and almost none at all, if that makes sense, was um, incredibly difficult. Uh, I certainly struggled in some of my quantitative courses. I hope that my accounting professor, Shane, might listen to this. Um, he knows all about that. Um, and that was, for me, also certainly a big adjustment. And, and you know, I, I was also a class who came in in the midst of the pandemic. So in addition to sort of the things that can be challenging about being in an environment in which it's incredibly academically rigorous with a lot of emphasis on securing a coveted internship. Um, I was also doing this as the pandemic raged on and I was separated from my family, um, you know, with the possibilities of, of bans and borders being closed. So that was um, certainly a, you know, a challenging time, but I always felt like it was the right choice. I had always worried that maybe I would, you know, have considered deferring or maybe doing something different. And I, and I never felt that way. I knew pretty much as soon as I set foot here um, that I had made the right choice. And again, in some ways, I think MBAs are designed to prepare you for what comes, you know, what might come at you as a, you know, general manager and executive at some point and crises that are sort of unprecedented, those are probably going to happen. So getting the chance to kind of navigate that early on um, while challenging, I think has also been, it's been fruitful for me. How have your career interests evolved during your, your time at Darden? One of the things that we talk with students a lot is this idea of being focused and open, uh, open yes. to possibility um, and wondering, has your career interests changed? Yeah, I would say they, they have actually. I uh, came into Darden thinking that I would um, most certainly recruit for a more general manager role. I know in the long term that I'm really interested in, in thinking about how to um, integrate social impact into the strategy of, of different corporations and organizations um, and, and you know, working on public-private partnerships and things like that. And my thinking had always been, I'll go into general management, I'll really understand a corporation from the inside out, I'll have a good lay of the land, and that will enable me to really have an impact as you know, somebody working in strategy later on. And when I got to Darden and I had, you know, it was a great plan. I was very, very excited about it. And then when I got to Darden, I started talking to all of these second years and these professors and 
the alums, I have, you know, really been sort of floored by how um, unbelievably generous and available the alumni have been to me. Uh, and I started to realize that what the sort of thing that I was envisioning taking maybe two to three years was probably going to take more like 20 to 30 years, um, just because of the way in which those sorts of corporations are, are currently structured and the challenges that they're facing and what they need help with. Um, and I also found myself really missing the technology piece that I had been working on before. Um, you know, I would find myself gravitating towards sort of more general management companies that were thinking about adding big technology components. And when that started happening, I, I realized, okay, maybe this is, maybe this is a time to be open and to consider something different. And so I actually made the decision to continue in tech. I, I wanted something different. I didn't want it to be education technology specific, and I wanted a much bigger company one with a global footprint. So that's sort of what I've shifted to and what my plans are post-graduation are to work um, at a larger technology company uh, on products and services that are related to um, sort of improving lives in a sort of broad term. Um, and I think a lot of the scale that I was initially envisioning happening in general management, I have found is more likely for me in my sort of short-term career goals to happen if I'm in tech. But one of the things that we've talked about here with students on the podcast is first year, you got a lot going on curricula, curricularly, you're working through the core, that's an adjustment, case method is new for everybody. Of course, you've yes. got this internship search that's happening at the same time. And you come into the second year and you set your schedule, you choose your classes, and theoretically you have more free time, although there's <laughs> lots of other stuff that fills up your time. So you're somebody who's super involved, Natalia. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing in addition to class uh, in your second year. Yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to um, come to Darden with a scholarship. And that was something that enabled me to come here and enabled my family um, to, to support me. My, you know, my partner moved with me and I felt and continue to feel really strongly about giving back. Um, that has sort of always guided my desire to be as involved as I am. I found a home for myself as a first year in the Graduate Women in Business Club. Um, it's Darden's largest student organization. Every woman at Darden is a member of, we call it GWIB, um, and GWIB doesn't charge dues. Um, the idea is that we wanna remove any barriers to women being able to participate and to be in community with each other. Uh, and that is a club that is dedicated to helping to, you know, helping support women, helping to recruit more women to Darden, helping to foster connections between the Charlottesville community, faculty, alumni, and current women. Uh, and I served as a gender equity rep my first year. Uh, that's a leadership position within the section. And that's how I really got to know GWIB. Um, and, you know, when it came time to decide what I wanted to do and how I wanted to spend my time as a second year, it was sort of a natural decision to think about becoming a leader in GWIB. Um, and so as a president of GWIB, I support my board of um, 11. So there's 12 of us total. Uh, we work, like I mentioned, on sort of all facets of achieving gender equity at Darden and supporting women beyond um, their time at Darden as well. Um, so that's something that takes up a lot of my time, but is um, you know, incredibly important to me and um, has made me feel um, incredibly connected to this community. It's also probably the best um, classroom I have, if that makes sense. It's an opportunity for me to manage my peers. It's an opportunity to negotiate with corporate sponsors, to 
um, make big asks of alumni, to take risks, um, to talk to the administration. I feel like it's been my greatest opportunity to sort of put into practice a lot of what I've learned in the classroom. Um, and I know I'll continue to do that outside of Darden, but it's really special to be able to do that here. Um, I'm also involved in the Darden Student Association um, Diversity Student Advisory Group. Um, so that's a group of students who think critically about diversity initiatives, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives at Darden and how those can be strengthened. Um, Darden also has a uh, resilience program, which is uh, designed to do prison education. So I'm uh, an instructor in that. I actually haven't started teaching. My teaching starts in the spring, but I'll be teaching um, entrepreneurship and sort of core business competencies to um, incarcerated women at uh, the Fluvanna facility, which is a facility about 30 minutes from um, Darden and, and Charlottesville. Um, so I, I have, you know, I'm incredibly excited about that opportunity. I'm also involved with Net Impact. That's one of our other um, amazing clubs. I serve on the board of a local nonprofit through a program that Net Impact has called Board Fellows. Um, and sort of tying it back to the very beginning of our conversation, I, I knew I wanted to continue my work with immigrants. So the organization that I support is um, Sin Barreras, which is a lo local Charlottesville nonprofit that supports the Latinx community um, in Charlottesville. And actually now we're starting to expand some services, just open an office in Waynesboro. Um, so it's certainly really busy. Uh, that's a lot of things to, to have going on outside of class, but it's been one of the greatest ways for me to meet other people, right? Especially beyond sort of section or whatever interests I might have that lead me to coalescing classes with people who perhaps are similar to me or have similar backgrounds. Um, the student clubs have been an amazing way, um, amazing way to do that um, and to sort of stay, stay involved. I appreciate your, your comment about you, how you're getting outside of, of Darden and getting involved in the community. Um, you would be surprised how many prospective students ask about how Darden students give back or get engaged with the Charlottesville community. And I always wonder what that looks like on an individual level. Um, we have yeah. like building goodness in April and things like that. But um, what's it meant to you to kind of get outside of business school for a little while and connect with people living in Charlottesville, living in perhaps Waynesboro, it sounds like maybe that's to come. Yeah. It's been, it's been so important. I think what is true about Darden and often about, you know, different business schools or graduate schools is that it can um, become a place that feels a little bit like a bubble and it's a beautiful bubble. I wouldn't change it for anything, uh, but it can be um, at times easy to get sucked into whatever event you're planning, whatever, you know, finance final you might have, um, you're recruiting. And I think, you know, as people who are going to graduate from this institution with um, an incredible amount of um, economic and just knowledge privilege, I feel really strongly about staying grounded and, and understanding um, what is going on in our local communities and the global community and understanding what ways we, we can support um, those communities. So for me, it has been a way to really retain a sense of self of who I am outside of the Natalia in the classroom or outside the Natalia who helps first years recruit for tech roles. Um, and I think it's really important that we, you know, we learn so many things. We have so many concepts and oftentimes we're applying them to corporations halfway across the world or across the country. Um, the truth is that Charlottesville has so many incredible opportunities and 
so many challenges that, that really need to be addressed and that I think we can make a huge impact in. Um, I'm taking a nonprofit class actually this quarter um, with Tony Irving and, and that class actually is going to allow us to do some consulting for local Charlottesville nonprofits. Um, and my Simbarreras experience has sort of certainly taught me that there can be a big gap between the experience that maybe a student has here at Darden and, and the lived experience of somebody living in Charlottesville. And so the more that I can do to um, understand that and, and potentially close those gaps, I think um, that's important to me. Yeah, you make a great point about uh, the bubble. You can get caught in in graduate yes. school and you just think this is everything. And you're like, well, maybe not. Uh, there's other stuff <laughs> happening in, in the world. Exactly. Um, you got to get out of it. Um, so you got a lot going on. Uh, it's amazing. The list of things that you just shared. Um, what are you looking forward to in the, in the months ahead? Yeah, I'm incredibly excited about our graduate women in business conference. Uh, so that's a conference, Brett, that we, typically um, host in the fall uh, in person. Of course, last year it was virtual, um, but this year we're actually making, um, organizing it in a hybrid format. Um, and that conference is going to bring together women from the first year class for two days of programming um, in which they'll get to meet corporate sponsors, alumni, um, and also just really spend time with each other um, trying to you know, further form these communities and connections. Um, it was a really important part of my first year. It's how I got to know some of the women who have since become lifelong friends for me and, and a huge support system. Uh, and I think also an amazing way to engage some of our alums who are so excited to come back to Darden and get to speak with current students. So that I am um, incredibly excited about. Uh, fingers crossed, we will also have the chance to do a Darden worldwide course. Um, that's something that I've been excited about since you know I even learned about them as a prospective student. Um, they've just sent out a list. So now you know, I'm sort of anxiously trying to figure out whether I'd rather go to Sweden or Iceland or Spain, or there's even an opportunity to go to Alaska. Um, so that's also something that I'm um, really, really looking forward to as well. And then um, something else that I'm that I'm involved in is uh, Darden is part of this fellowship program called the Tri-Sector Fellowship Program. It's a program that brings together students from business school, the law school, and the public policy school for conversations and dialogues with guest speakers. And again, because of my background and sort of my previous life thinking that maybe I wanted to be a policymaker or a lawyer, um, I'm really excited about getting to dive into those conversations with um, folks from those different schools and those different perspectives. Um, so that's that's something I'm really excited about. That program, the Tri-Sector Fellows, sounds so interesting. Just the group of people that you get together with, I, I have yeah. to believe that, I mean, from the business school, from the law school, from the from the policy school. I mean, you, the conversations that you can have, the perspectives that you hear, it has to be such yeah. a such a rich experience. Yeah, I'm incredibly, you know, I'm I'm super excited about it. Um, I think it's going to be a really, really, really wonderful way um, to unpack some of, um, you know, we're we're talking about all sorts of different issues and having all sorts of different guests. So I'm very excited about that. You know, what a time to be in that. I mean, you got all the, the budget right. stuff going on, infrastructure. I know stuff. we have Virginia elections in a couple of weeks, so it's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it'd be curious to see what happens with uh, the, the midterm elections. Those tend not yeah. to go so well for the, the party in power, historically exactly. speaking. So, yep. uh, a lot of eyes on Virginia and the, the governor's race uh, here. A lot of so, eyes on Virginia. Yeah. So, it'd be, be very well. Election day is, well, we're recording this in late October, so it's right around the, right around the corner. I know, it is right around the corner. <laughs> well, Natalia, any uh, final words of advice, any tips for our prospective student listeners? 
Yeah, I think um, a couple of things that I, you know, in, in my role as GWIB, I, I'm lucky enough to talk to, to prospective women all the time. Um, I think, you know, I am passionate about helping more women to envision themselves in business school and to get there. I think um, if there's anybody listening who is unsure whether business school could be the right choice um, or whether they are the right candidate for it, I would really encourage them to reach out to somebody like me, um, whether I'm still a student or an alumni, to, to have conversations. Um, I regret that it took me as long as it did to consider coming here because I um, had a very narrow view of what kind of people were able to go to business school and what kind of things they could do after. Um, so I would say just, you know, push that narrative a little bit if, if you um, think that there's even a little bit of room um, because we need you. We need women and diverse candidates in the classroom and on boards and in corporations. Um, I think on the more tactical um, application side, I um, found it really useful to um, try and, um, this can sound sort of silly, but I tried to find a couple of people in my life, you know, close friends or, or mentors who I could really talk to about my application. Um, but I tried not to let that sort of take over my life. I had done that in other times of, of, of my life in which I had sort of let, you know, a particular job process kind of become what I would talk about with everybody and think about it at all times. I think that was really healthy for me. Um, and I think the application period can be incredibly stressful and overwhelming. Um, it can really take a toll on, on your confidence and your mental health. So I think it's worthwhile to think about sort of those coping mechanisms. And then something that I didn't consider is that the process after decisions have come out and before you need to actually decide where you're going is actually fairly more stressful than anybody ever told me. Um, I had sort of just thought that it would, you know, all the stress would end as soon as you sub hit submit. Uh, but the reality is that you still have a choice to make and that you still, you have um, a lot of things to consider. So I tell folks all the time, you know, rest a little after your applications are done, but then be really intentional about thinking about what exactly it is that you want um, and what options might lead you there. Uh, I think it can be tempting to sort of just walk away and see, okay, I'll figure it out when um, decisions come in. And, and I, I get that. I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a little superstitious, but I ended up being in some sort of in a panic when I had to make a decision and, and feeling a little overwhelmed. So I like to tell people, um, you know, take that time, um, be, be really intentional. Um, but yeah, overall, I think the hardest part is deciding. The hardest part is deciding that you want to pursue this and, and really sort of putting yourself out there. Um, whether it's just to yourself because you're not sharing that with others or to your colleagues, your friends, your partner. Um, so I think once you're, once you've done that step, you've done the hardest part. That's such a good point that from an admissions committee standpoint, we have so much respect for our applicants because, you know, you're taking a leap when you apply for exactly. anything and not yeah. everybody, not everybody has the courage to do that. So we recognize a lot of hard work, time, effort, self-reflection, all these vulnerability. Kinds of things. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Go into, go into these decisions to, to even apply. And so, exactly. um, so a lot of tremendous amount of respect for people who are willing, willing to embark upon that journey. Absolutely. Well, Natalia, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the podcast and for sharing your story and, and good luck with the, with the GWIB conference and, and diversity conference in the, in the weeks ahead. Thank you. Yes. Um, excited. Hopefully some of the listeners can join us for diversity conference. I'm very excited about that. Thank you, Brett. And that was my interview with Natalia Alvarez-Diaz. 
a second year student in our full-time MBA class of 2022. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.